If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. We're in John 14, starting at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be, with, will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, uh, because I live you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am the Father, that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, and my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of the world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll hop into verses 15. We're going to focus on verses 15 through 24 from chapter 14. Uh, so pray with me. Uh, Father, um, today in your word, we have a, a beautiful um, description of um, who you are, who your son is, who the spirit is, um, who you give yourself to and the many great blessings and gifts that are given to us through you. Uh, so I just pray that you would draw our attention to these things, um, as always, that you would grow our faith in Christ, um, and that we would uh, be stirred up um, in our affections, um, in, our, in our thoughts, uh, to give you worship, to give you praise, to sing uh, to you um, today, and to praise your Son today. We know that all this is possible if you give to us your spirit. And so we ask, Lord, give us your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so I was asked kind of on the fly. No, it was on the fly uh, this past Monday. Um, if I could give a 10 to 15 minute talk on the doctrine of the Trinity uh, in a high school philosophy and worldview class. It was something, this is how I heard it in my mind. It didn't maybe go this way, but this is how I heard it in my mind. Can you cover the Trinity and why this indicates that Christians, the Christian God is personal in 15 minutes 
with mostly 10th and a little bit of 11th graders. And then in my mind, but probably not in reality, I said, uh, yeah, sure. And then I said, God help me. Um, so that was what was required of me. Uh, and they're going through this book. Uh, it's, it's by James Sire, and it's a basic worldview book where they ask seven worldview questions. And the first worldview question is, uh, is there a God? And if you answer yes, right, then depending on the God that you're talking about, and assuming you the two sides of God, is he powerful? Is he personal? And the personal question is the part that we were on in the worldview uh, class. Most people would claim their God is powerful. Fewer people worldwide than you would think would claim that their God is personal. And even fewer people in the world would tie the personalness of God to the doctrine of God is a trinity. And that was kind of what I was uh, giving addressed. You see, if there is one God who's existed from eternity, there becomes a key question that should concern us. Is this God personal? If you say yes, then we have another problem. How can God, before he created anything, creatures or any, any other thing, how can God, before he created the universe, be personal with himself if he is only one person? How can God love another if for all eternity he hasn't loved another? And so you can kind of see where the doctrine of God as three persons becomes extremely tangible and, and, and uh, personal about how we relate to one another and how we can also affirm that God is personal. Christianity provides an answer, right? God has loved others from eternity and God has loved himself from eternity. The father has always loved and lavished his love upon the son and the spirit and vice versa. Uh, in a delightful book, and I recommend it. It's a short book. It's called um, Delighting in the Trinity by a guy named Michael Reeves. He's not a dead old guy. He's a live uh, old guy. So he wrote this book, Delighting in the Trinity, an introduction to the Christian faith. And he says kind of what I just said to you all. He says this, God is love. Those three words could hardly be more bouncy. They seem lively, lovely, and as warming as a crackling fire. But God is a trinity? No, hardly the same effect. That just sounds cold, stodgy, all quite understandable. But the aim of this book is to stop the madness. Yes, the Trinity can be presented as a fusty, which is an awesome word that means irrelevant, and irrelevant dogma. But the truth is that God is love because God is a Trinity. And so he attempts to show this uh, from his book. And that might be a good summary of our text today. That might be a good summary of this sermon today, and really a good summary of the entire upper room discourse, chapters 13 through 17 in John. God is love because God is a trinity. God is personal because God is a trinity. That seems to be Jesus' thoughts. Let me show you kind of how I'm getting to that conclusion. In John, the gospel, Jesus is most personal in chapters 13 through 17. He's just talking to his disciples. He's just talking to those who are his followers, right? He's most personal in John 13 through 17. And in John 13 and 17, Jesus makes the Trinity most explicit. 
And so when Jesus is being most personal, he talks about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit the most and their interrelations with it. Uh, another book, if you guys want to read, um, I know you like reading, uh, Andreas Kostenberger and a guy named Scott Swain wrote a book called Father, Son, and Spirit, The Trinity and God's, or sorry, not God's, John's Gospel. And you can kind of see the whole book is just analyzing what does John say in his gospel about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And because I'm a, a nerd, after reading it, I wanted to find out how often they make references to the upper room discourse connected to references with the early chapters 1 through 12. These authors make reference about the Trinity in John chapters 1 through 12 1,067 times. If you got rid of verses 1 through 18 of chapter 1, the prologue, it would be 867 times. I'm weird. I counted every one of those things. But the upper room discourse, just five chapters, 13 through 17, it is referred to 570 times. So I'm going to give you the math because math is good. In the first 12 chapters, the Trinity and their reference to it is approximately 89 references per chapter. But when we get to the upper room discourse, 89 becomes 114 per chapter. So again, to summarize, Jesus, when he gets more personal with his disciples, his teaching concerning God as Trinity increases today drastically, some 25 more references per chapter. So today we have a, a kind of small sample of this in our text, and, and you'll kind of see what I mean. In our text today, we find the Trinity everywhere. Today, I, I quite literally feel like the Grinch after his feet got warm, after his head got unscrewed, after his heart grew three times Si three times its size, right? And that I feel like I have the honor of kind of carving the roast beast for you guys today. And I hope that it comes across that way as well. So today in our text, we will not only see the Trinity, but we will see how the Father, the Son, and the Spirit give themselves to us. What were they doing before creation but loving one another perfectly? In the upper room discourse, and in today's text particularly, we learn that not only for all of eternity were they loving each other, but they extend that relationship out and invite Jesus' followers into it. That we get to experience the love and community of the Trinity itself, of our God. Those who trust themselves wholly to Jesus, who see Jesus' death as their death, as his life as their life. Those who die to themselves and live to Christ. We're invited into this fellowship. So let's carve this roast beast and we're going to savor it three times. We'll seek to answer three questions in honor of the Trinity. For each of the questions, we will go through the text beginning to the end. You guessed it three times in honor of the kid. There's going to be a lot of threes. You're going to hear three a lot. And today we're going to answer these three questions. Who is the Trinity? To whom is the Trinity given? And finally, what are the blessings, blessings given by the Trinity. There will be general and specific applications kind of made throughout, but in total, this is kind of one of those sermons where I see it's not so much about the application as is gazing into the character of our God and allowing God's character to just flow over our minds and wash our hearts. God himself is, in a, in a sense, our application today. And if the fellowship of the Trinity has carried God throughout eternity and love, 
we will find that being brought into relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit will be good enough to carry us into eternal life, as John says. So let's look at our, our first question, a little bit different. Uh, this is coming to us, again, we're going to go through the text uh, a little bit different. Um, we're basically going to go through it three straight times uh, because all the points are found all throughout the text. Um, so who is the Trinity? This is coming from the whole thing. A couple of notes before answering uh, this question. Let me show you that our text itself indicates that the Trinity is the main point, that, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are the main point. Um, this was actually an early way that I outlined um, the sermon. Look at verses 15 through 17. We have the promise of another helper who is none other than the Holy Spirit. Uh, John writes in 16 and first part of 17. I will ask the Father, he will give to you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. So we find the spirit emphasized in the first part. In verses 18 through 21, we find Jesus, the son, emphasized. Look at verse 18. I, talking about Jesus, will come to you. Look at verse 19. But you will see me, again, talking about Jesus, Verse 19 again, because I, talking about Jesus, live you in you. Uh, so we see Jesus focus upon. Then look at verses 22 through 24, the final section. We see that the Father is prominent in this section. We find him uh, in 21 as well, but primarily in 22 through 24. I'll read uh, just one of those for you. Verse, verse 23, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. So originally, when I was drawing out this sermon, I had organized it around the three persons of the Trinity, and it was going to be something like another helper given forever, verses 15 through 17. Christ gone, yet here, verses 18 through 21. At home with the Father, verses 22 through 24. But the text changed my mind and changed my outline a little bit. The problem is, even though we see those persons prominently featured, they bleed out all throughout it. You can't go to any part of this text and not find the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Um, I could give, I'll, I'll give one example. We won't belabor the point. The Spirit in verses 18 through 21 is allow, he's what allows us to see Christ when he's gone. And in verse 23, he is the one that enables us to receive the Father and the Son into our hearts as a, a kind of home. And so we see these persons bleed out in all the respective areas, even though there's kind of a focus. So let's answer the question now. Who is the Trinity? Um, and I think first graders through sixth graders, children, children that are in the, the service, I got two questions for you. I think you can answer them. Um, question number two from the catechism. You ready? Ready? I got to see a, a nod. I'm not seeing a nod. All right. Question number two. What is God? God is the creator of everyone and everything. All right. Here's the next one. Question number three. How many persons are there in God? There are three persons in one God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. Outlined by children, right? It's easy enough for a child to understand. It's easy enough for an adult to understand. And listen, children and adults, 
Don't let anyone tell you that you cannot understand God. He reveals himself clearly in his word. He reveals himself clearly in his word. So it's that simple. There are three persons in one God, and therein lies the foundation and framework for our entire existence as God's creatures and also for our entire salvation as his children. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. There are three persons in one God. All right, so we see it in the Catechism, but do we see it in the text? Do we see this truth in the text? And so what we're going to do, we're going to look at each one. So you can hit the first, the the Father bullet point. Um, Yeah, that's good. Um, So John says a few things about the Father in our text that seem to indicate that he is God. Look with me at verse 16. Jesus writes, or Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Jesus here prays to the Father that the Father then would supply and answer Jesus' prayer by giving another helper. We see Jesus pray to his Father all throughout the Gospels. We're going to see it again in the Upper Room Discourse. All of chapter 17, Jesus is praying to the Father. I think this is good evidence for already saying, well, then the Father must be God because he's being prayed. Then look at verse 24, and this kind of adds to it. Jesus says, the, And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So Jesus makes this very bold claim. His words are not his words, but the Father's words. And then there's a kind of secondary claim in there. The Father sent me to you, right? The Father sends the Son to become a man. And so we can kind of indicate here that the Father is clearly seen as God in this text. So let's move on to the Son. Do we see that the Son is also God in this text? Does John indicate this to us as well. Um, so if you've been paying attention to the kind of last three sermons from Pastor Scott, John, and David, uh, chapters 13 and really the beginning of chapter 14 last week, you'll notice that amongst other things, there was one repeated theme in all of the three sermons. Jesus claims to be God. Um, so Pastor Scott in chapter 13, verse 21, he looked at the word testified and showed some of the background of that and rolled through the, the gospel of John with the word testified, and he surveyed John's use of the word, and he demonstrates that John actually uses it to show Jesus' humanity and also his divinity. A couple weeks ago, Pastor John, in chapter 13, verse 31, he took that title, the Son of Man, right, applied to Christ, and he showed that that comes from Daniel chapter 7, and it's a clear claim that Jesus is more than just a man, but he's divine. He is going to judge all of the earth. And then last week in uh, Pastor David's sermon in John chapter 14, verse 6, we find another I am statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he focused in again on I am, right? That's going all the way back to when God reveals himself through Mo- to Moses from the burning bush. And he says, I am that I am. Jesus is making divine claims all throughout the upper room discourse, and it's proven once again in our text. Um, so look at with me at verse 15. This was really easy for me to miss. Um, I, I read this a couple of times and didn't get it, and then I tested it out on some high schoolers, 
And one of the high schoolers got it in like 2.5 seconds, and I was really disappointed with myself. But in verse 15, uh, Jesus says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's a pretty straightforward and clear statement, standing alone, but it comes with a kind of divine echo, a whisper that comes to us all throughout the Old Testament, down now into Jesus's own words. Let me give you just two examples of this whisper. Uh, First one comes from Exodus 20, verses, I'm going to read the latter end of five and verse six. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Again, we hear it in Deuteronomy 5.10, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. That ending right there, those who love me and keep my commandments, it summarizes the demands of the Mosaic covenant. And yet here we have it on the very lips of Jesus, and he's doing something slightly different. We expect, I don't know what you read when you read when you heard me read Exodus and Deuteronomy. I don't know if you thought, like when I hear those who love me and keep my commandments, I think God the Father, the lawgiver. But here we have God the Son saying, those who love me and keep my commandments. Jesus has no problem putting himself interchangeably in place of God the Father and claiming the same authority that was behind the entire old covenant now claiming it of himself. And so I would say, case closed, Jesus makes a clear claim to divinity there. Um, So let's do the third one. Is the Spirit God? Do we see the Spirit being claimed as God in our text? Uh, Look at verse 17, kind of the first part. Even the Spirit of truth. This already kind of hints at the divinity of the Spirit. Um, John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? Jesus says, I am spirit of truth. He's going to be doing some of the same things that Jesus does. He is going to communicate Christ to us. And so we see already a kind of relationship that indicates that he's more than just this uh, spirit that's not God. This is similar. uh, Look at verse 17, the kind of latter part of it. He dwells with you and will be in you, talking about the spirit of truth. He dwells with you and will be in you. This is similar language to the Father and the Son being in one another and also dwelling with us, and later on in this text from 23, making a home with us. And so this similar language that's associated with Father and Son is also associated with the Spirit, that He is in us and will dwell with us. So the Spirit's being associated with the Son and the Father. But here's the kicker, and I think the awesome proof of the Spirit's divinity. Look at verse 16 again. He will give you another helper to be with you forever. So he's going to be with you forever. He's eternal. But the word that captured my attention, and I think it captures some of the attention of the early ancient church, is this word, another. So look at that word again, another helper Um, There's an ancient church father named Gregory of Nazianzus. The only thing that you need to know about him is that he had a good friend named Basil the Great. I named my dog after him. And through a series of unfortunate events, my parents ended up with the dog and renamed him Dougie. 
So this deep church name turned into Dougie. But anyways, Basil's friend, Gregory, he wrote this of this word another. He said, but he is called another comforter so that you might acknowledge his co-equality. For the word another defines an alter ego, a name of equal lordship, not of inequality. We do not use the word another for different kinds of things, but for those that are consubstantial. That's a really fancy word, consubstantial, uh, that old guys use in philosophy occasionally. Uh, this just simply means the spirit is like Jesus and his nature is like Jesus's nature. That's why he's another helper. Uh, interesting enough, this word also cuts both ways for the early church and for me. Not only does it imply equality between the Son and the Spirit, it's very much implying that the Son and the Spirit are not the same person, right? He's another helper. He's not the same helper. The Spirit, as we shall see, also connects us to the Father and the Son and communicates wonderful gifts from them to us. This function of the Spirit also indicates that he is God. So again, if we were to ask the question, how many persons are there in God? There are three persons in one God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And our text draws our attention to that. Um, we actually have a relationship with him. The Trinity, as it were, is gifted to us, um, to a people. So our text now seems concerned to answer, if it answers who is God, it also then answers to whom is God given or to whom is the Trinity given. So basically, it's now answering who sits at the feast of roast beast, if we're continuing our, our Grinch analogy. So to whom is the Trinity given? There's lots of threes, again, in this sermon. The question of to whom the Trinity is given is answered three times, and it's answered positively and negatively, and in both of those ways, three times. You're going to, I hope, one of my goals is that you see three in your sleep um, tonight. So uh, we see to whom the Trinity is given, and we also see to whom the Trinity is not given. So let's, let's roll through our text one more time to see kind of the positive and negative answering of this. Let's start with the first section. Look at verses 15 through 17. It starts by answering positively. The ones who receive the Trinity are those who love me, love Jesus, right? Love me and keep my commandments. It's they who will then receive the spirit of truth forever, verse 16. But then it answers it negatively, also in verse 16. Who's not going to get it? Look at 16 again. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. All right, let's look at the next section, 19 through 21. Again, we'll get a, a negative and a, a positive answering. In 19, we see a negative answering of the question. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. Again, the world doesn't see me. Then we get a positive answering in 19 and also in 21. But you will see me, 19. And then look at 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. All right, we have one more section. Look at 23 through 24, and again, we'll get positive and negative. 23 answers positively. Jesus answered them, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, 
and we will come to him and make our home with him. And then in 24, we get the negative answer. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. So in short, there's two answers to this question. The Trinity is given to those who love and obey Jesus. The Trinity is not given to those who are of the world. That's kind of the answer that it gives us. And so I want to really focus on these two statements. And uh, if it's not already up, you can put the love and obey uh, part up on the slideshow. So we're going to look at the love and obey part. And then we'll later on, we're going to look at the those who are of the world part. But I wanted to really, uh, I wanted to lay aside any concerns if you read this text. And I also wanted to help us feel what is at stake in this text. So those are kind of the two things that I want to attempt to do. The first kind of concern is what I think, maybe you don't struggle with this, but this is how I am tempted to feel after reading verse 15. I don't perfectly obey Jesus. Oftentimes, I even find myself sinning against him, denying him three times, as it were, Peter. Therefore, I don't love Jesus. Therefore, I am not in blessed union and communion with the Trinity. I am of the world. So, what I'm saying here is it's really easy for us to say, oh, well, who gets the Trinity? Those who love and obey. Well, do I really love well? Do I really obey well? Am I really in that category? Uh, this is what happens when we kind of start to confuse law and gospel together. Law and gospel. Um, I'm going to call out Garrett. I told him I was doing this, though. Garrett wears a shirt pretty occasionally. I've counted, I think, up to 15 times since I've known him. Uh, it's a shirt that says on the front, Glospel, G-L-A-W-S-P-E-L. Um, it says Glospel, and it gives kind of a, def a definition of it. But basically, the shirt's trying to bring up the with the good news of Jesus. Glospel not saved. Brothers and sisters, I can safely say you all are great sinners. I am also a great sinner. None of us obey Jesus as we ought. None of us love Christ as we ought. I mean, think about this. If we think the Ten Commandments are hard enough, go to Jesus's exposition of the Ten in the Sermon of the Mount, and it gets infinitely harder by the way that he teaches and interprets it for us in Matthew 5 through 7. It is a crushing burden that no shoulder but one could carry, the law. And brothers and sisters, make no mistake, that shoulder is the shoulder of your great Savior, Jesus. The heaviest part of the cross he carries, he carries on your behalf so that we might receive love and nourishment in life. Now, that's one side of it. Don't mix law and gospel. The other side is as important, and we need to not make a mistake here. If you are not concerned at all with obeying and loving Jesus, you are not a follower of Jesus. If there's no concern in our souls whatsoever, if there's no growth towards loving and obeying Jesus, we are not Christians. Christians love Jesus. They grow in their obedience to Jesus. But the origin of their love for Jesus is not found in themselves or in how they kind of grit their teeth and obey the law but rather the origin is actually found in the love of the Trinity, the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. John writes this elsewhere in 1 John. 
we love because he first loved us. You see, the love of God is shed abroad into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, who's then given to us. And who is he given to? Look back again. We're going to go to last week's sermon. Um, Pastor David's comforting text from John 14, 1 through 14. Look back just real quick. I'm going to peruse it. Verse 1, believe in God, believe also in me. All right, skip forward to verse 10. Believe. Do you see believe there in verse 10? Look at verse 11. Believe, believe twice, right? Look at verse 12, believes, right? In the first 14 verses, we have five times with Christ being the object of our faith. Now let's look at our text. Let's start at, we'll start with verse 15. Love. Look at verse 21. Loves. Loves. Look at verse 23. Loves. Look at verse 24. Love. Five times in our text, is it about our love for Christ? So what's John doing here? Our love for Christ flows out of our trust in Christ. And if you mix those two things around, it kills love. It kills love. And so I don't want us to get that twisted. Faith fuels our love and obedience for Jesus, not the other way around. And here's a, here's a good, uh, just a good pastoral quote that from a guy named Robert Murray McShane uh, in a personal letter that he's writing to one of his members. Take 10 looks at Christ. So applying it to this text, for every look at your love and obedience to Christ or lack thereof, Take 10 looks of faith upon Christ who died for you on your behalf. Love lives if you trust in the death of Christ. Love dies when it's not rooted in the death of Christ. So let's go to the second kind of part. So we had the love and obey. Those are the ones who receive the Trinity. And those who are of the world are kind of the ones that don't receive the Trinity. And I, wanna, I, I really want to kind of show the stakes Uh, for this part. Verse 16 tells us the world cannot receive the spirit. I had a student one time when I was, I I, I can't remember. One of the students was like, hey, can I go to the bathroom? And one of the students snarked up and said, can is a condition of ability, right? You know, but that's a good grammar point to remember. Cannot is the condition of inability. And this text is saying the world is unable to receive the Spirit. Why? Because they neither see him nor can they know him. They cannot taste and see that he is good. They cannot know him relationally because they are dead to him. Verse 18 says this, I will not leave you, talking to Christians, as orphans. And this is fulfilled in us by receiving the Spirit, but we can take the reverse of that and talk about the plight of the world, right? We're not left as orphans. The world is orphaned. It's fatherless. It's broken. It's desolate. That is the state of the world. Verse 19 tells us the world will see Jesus no more after he leaves. This could be a reference to 
his resurrection. They won't see him after his resurrection. It could be a, a reference to his ascension when he goes back to the Father. It could be a tad of both. They will not see Jesus. Verse 24, the world does not love Jesus, and because they do not love Jesus, they do not keep Jesus's word. And then if we tie this to kind of what we've been talking about regarding loving and obeying Christ, this is all the more heartbreaking. The world experiences not the rich and true and loving relationship of God, but instead something completely alien, something completely opposite. They do not have the community with the Trinity. And so if you're here today and you think that you are of the world, if you would put yourself in that category, I want you to hear the words of Christ from another passage in Matthew 23. He's looking out at his city, um, his people who have ultimately rejected him in a lot of ways. And he says this, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See your house is left to you desolate for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even now, Jesus would have you gather under his wings. Even the people who were killing his prophets, he would have them gather under his wings. Jesus would look at you even now and say, believe in me, trust in me, receive the love of God into your hearts through faith in Jesus Christ. To the church, I just want to turn to us and say this. Does our heart break for the plight of the lost? Does our heart break for the plight of the lost? Um, Pastor John and I were talking, uh, it was about midnight, which is not good. Kids, go to bed before midnight. Um, this past Monday, we were talking, and uh, he brought up this thing to my attention in an angle that I wasn't thinking of it, but in Romans 9, Paul makes this statement. He basically says, I wish I could be cut off from Christ for the sake of my kinsmen, that they might know Christ. And we, we were just trying to tease that out a little bit. I wish I could be cut off from the love and union with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, so that this person right here who doesn't have that union might taste and see that the Lord is good. That's radical love. Uh, John and I both agree that our love pales. We, we're not there. But I would challenge us as a church that we need to see the plight of the lost and we need to ask God to give us this heart for the lost, that we would be a people that naturally sacrifice our wants and our desires so that someone who doesn't have Christ might hear about Christ. There's one more question to answer as the rain draws us to a close. Um, what are the blessings given by the Trinity? What are the blessings given? So we've carved up the roast beast. We've smelled of its sweetness. We've seen it, who sits at the table and are able to eat. And now, beloved of God, we're going to feast, feast, feast. We are going to see the blessings that come to us via union with God. And again, our text is going to answer this in all three parts. And there's way more, but we're going to settle for just four. Yeah, I, I broke the trend. We're going four instead of three. Um, so we're going to look at four blessings. Look first at 16 through 17. And this is kind of the first blessing. You can throw it up. Comfort and truth. 
comfort and truth. Um, so uh, we start with truth. The spirit is the spirit of the truth. He's given to us according to 17. He takes who Jesus is and he declares him to us for Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The spirit is of truth. Over here is only used here and then elsewhere in 1 John. We'll talk about that later. But it comes from the Greek root comfort, which is used everywhere in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. I'll give one example of a text that lays pretty close to the heart of the apostle John as he writes John. Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Isaiah 61 is echoing another text, Isaiah 42 and this is of Jesus' baptism used in all four Gospels, um, where the Spirit remains on Jesus. And this is actually, in chapter 1, when we get a discussion of Jesus' baptism, the Spirit is said to remain on Jesus. And it's this word, abide, remain, dwell. And we find that very word here when it talks about the, the Spirit dwelling with us. And then we're going to see it again in chapter 15. Abide, abide, abide. Every single time you see the word abide, you should think, well, that's the Holy Spirit causing us to do that. Because the first time we get the word abide is in reference to the Holy Spirit abiding upon Jesus for his entire life and ministry. So the Spirit and God and Christ, they, they provide comfort and they provide truth for us. That's one of the many benefits. Here's the second one. Sonship and daughtership. They make us children of God. And this is verse 18 again. We're not orphaned. We're not abandoned, but rather Jesus remains present with us. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Um, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are not orphans. We are sons and daughters of God. We are family of the Trinity. Um, we're, do you, so... You know, we could really apply this to a lot of things that we feel in our experiences. I'm going to take one. I'm going to just take loneliness. But you could really take a lot of different experiences that we taste of. And this truth that I'm about to walk us through applies really to all of them. So let me just take loneliness. Do you ever feel loneliness? I'm going to give some examples. Maybe you're married, but you travel. Perhaps your spouse, part, like you're gone for a week or something, chunks of a time, and you struggle with loneliness. Or perhaps your spouse in your absence struggles with loneliness. Maybe you're single, but you have a very strong desire to be married and loneliness starts to eat away at your soul. Maybe you're widowed or your spouse is divorced or even abandoned you and loneliness eats away at you. Maybe you're getting to the age where you're losing friends to death or perhaps your parents are getting to the age where they themselves are dying or showing the great decay of death. And this kind of fills you with a little bit of hopelessness hopelessness or loneliness. Maybe you have friends that have left the church or have moved away and you're grieved by this. Perhaps you've lost loved ones, family, friends, children, siblings, um, neighbors, and death and grief and loneliness kind of intermingle. Children, maybe your siblings or maybe one of your friends has done something to you that's made you feel lonely. Or maybe 
when your parents have made you feel lonely at times. Or maybe, dear believer, you have really good friends and a good community around you, and you really can't pinpoint a reason for feeling lonely, but yet you still feel lonely. The blessed three, always with you. And to go even further than that truth, that you're not alone in your affliction, God is afflicted in your affliction. This is Isaiah 63, 9. That God, when his people were afflicted, he too was afflicted. Isn't Jesus really the only one who can define what true loneliness actually means? Jesus, the one who cried from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he did that so that never in a single second believers can ever say that God has forsaken us. We can always proclaim God is with us. Let's look at the third um, benefit. <laughs> this, is a, a, this is a cop out. Um, Christ and his benefits. That's the third benefit. All the benefits is the third benefit. So there's a lot of benefits here. And this is, this is I love this one. Uh, Christ and his benefits. Look at verse 19. Because, wow. There's a summary of the gospel. There's the bumper sticker version. If you want to communicate the good news, because I live, you will live. Does Satan ever whisper in your ear, you're cursed, you're gone astray, you're a sinner, you're disobedient? Turn to Satan and say, because Christ lives, I will live. Does your heart ever feel the burden of your own sinfulness? Or maybe it's something else, affliction or, or just struggle. Does your heart ever turn in on itself and seek to condemn you and say, you're not a child of God? Well, look to your heart. Say that God is greater than your heart and say, oh, heart, Christ lives, so will I. Does the world ever kind of laugh at this whole Jesus stuff or mock you or ignore you? Or maybe it's a, a, another way around it. The amusement of the world tempts you to feel the gospel as dull, as repetitive, as not really shiny. I really like this TV show more than this thing right here. I'm feeling these things here. We'll turn to the world and say, because my precious Savior lives, I too will live. The benefits of Christ are applied to us and through us. Let's look at the fourth and, and the final. Well, actually, you know what? Before the fourth, I want to throw up one other thing. I mentioned the, the advocate. It says that there's another helper, right? That word helper is used one other place. And I just want to show you where it's at. This is 1 John 2, 1 through 2. He uses this word helper. And this time it's not of the spirit. It's of Christ. So if you were wondering who the other helper was, it's Christ. So the Father has sent two helpers to us, two persons who themselves are God. God helps us by giving us God. That, that's kind of the, the pattern here. First John writes this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a helper with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We see Jesus, though he is gone. The helper communicates him to us. Our first helper is communicated by our second helper. 
Uh, let's go to the fourth and the final one. And this is a, another summary one. If it's not already abundantly clear, we receive communion with God. That's the greatest benefit. We are in communion with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. In Pastor David's text, uh, 1 through 14, we have Christ going away to make a room for us in his Father's house. And it's such a comforting thought that Jesus leaves to go make a home for us, right? In our text today, we actually have a, a related truth that's inversed. It's like almost flipped around in verse 23. It says this, we, the Father and the Son, we will come to him and make our home with him. The Spirit transforms us into a place where God makes us into a room for God. I, if that's not enough to warm us up to sing, because we're about to sing, and I want to hear loud voices, because that, that, be, that should be enough to warm us up to sing. I'm not sure there's any other promise hot enough in Scripture uh, to make us uh, praise his name. So I want to conclude um, the Roast Beast Feast uh, with a poem. And then we're going to lift our voices and sing to the Father. Uh, this is a poem about the Trinity. It says, Yes, my God, oh, for sweet tears of joy to run down my cheek in this contemplation. For you in complete divine threeness have saved me from my deserved damnation. Father, you have given me over to your Son for salvation and calling me by name. Son, you have brought me from wrath by enduring the cross of wrathful flame. Spirit, you have connected me to Christ, and so his resurrection becomes mine. I will praise you, O God, who is truly three amid love's flame for all time. Let's pray. And Father, warm our hearts um, to these truths. Uh, warm our minds to these truths. Um, I really look forward to us just being able to sing to you in these next coming minutes. And Lord, put this great wedding, this, this foretaste of this great wedding banquet in front of us in the Lord's Supper today. Let us see Jesus. Let us participate in his body and blood, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10. Help us to sing to you uh, out of hearts aflamed with love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.